Welcome to The Astute Macaron, a podcast where I finally read the classics and then bake about it. My name is Misty and I'm your host, and I've always felt like I should read the classics, but until now I've gotten by on Wikipedia summaries and pop culture references, and now I'm challenging myself to actually read them and basically find out what all the fuss is about. I bake for fun and stress relief, so each week I reward myself by baking something inspired by the book. I admit I'm not the best baker, so it doesn't always turn out pretty or edible, but I try. Um, So this week I read the 1960 classic To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, and I baked a cherry cobbler. A quick content warning, this book deals with a lot of racism and does include many, many instances of the N-word. There's also some sexism, a really uncomfortable rape case that goes to trial, and some mild violence. Um, I actually did not know much going into this book. I had a really weird introduction to it, as a matter of fact. Um, I was asked to participate in a read-along at my bookstore for like an anniversary of the publishing or maybe Harper Lee's birthday, I'm not sure. Um, But anyway, I ended up reading out loud without ever having read any other part of this book. The scene where Atticus cross-examines the young girl who's claiming she was raped, and it was really weird and unpleasant, and it just did not give me a very good feel for the book. Um, Other than that, I knew the names of the characters because they are basically everywhere in pop culture, and that's about it. And actually, I have to admit, I really enjoyed reading this book. Um, I really liked Scout, who's the narrator. I really enjoyed the way that Harper Lee writes, Uh, the consistency in her characters. We don't get that weird wishy-washy crap like we had in 1984 where he's like oh one second I hate this woman and the next second I'm madly in love with her like Scout is just Scout she feels very real um the voice is young not so young that it's difficult to get into but uh it feels appropriately young Um, Scout is endearing. She's not too annoying. Sometimes she's annoying, but in an endearing way. Seeing the the thread of the larger story shape up is also impressive because I cared a lot about Scott and her brother, Scout and her brother, not Scott, Jesus, about Scout and her brother and their summers. Um, I can see how for a lot of white readers, the story really mirrors the way that they probably learned about racism in the world and it also holds up this sort of idealized white ally. Um, Atticus, who is Scout's father, uh, works within a racist system to try to defend a black man and even though he doesn't succeed, he still sees it as a kind of success because the jury took hours to find him guilty instead of the, you know, seconds that would have normally taken place but also that black man ends up dead so still not a success but um as a reader I really really enjoyed this book but I don't know if requiring it in schools is really the best way to teach students about racism because 
you're forcing students of color to read this and that seems needlessly cruel, especially given that there are so many casual drops of the N-word, some really upsetting generalizations made about black people that just sort of go unchallenged, and it, it's upsetting. And I think it's supposed to be upsetting, but maybe we could try to move away from using books about white protagonists as teaching tools about racism, maybe? Just, you know, something to think about. Um, but anyway, all that aside, let's get into the actual book. Um, I'm going to go kind of quickly because I know a ton of people have read this one. Um, Scout is our narrator. She is six at the beginning of the book, and by the end, she's nine. And most of the book takes place over the three summers in between. Um, she plays with her older brother, Jem, and their friend who comes down for the summer, whose nickname is Dill. And their world is kind of weird and childish and fun. They like to play pranks on one another. They like to come up with silly stories and plays. Um... They have this recluse neighbor named Boo Radley, who they, and his real name is Arthur, but everyone calls him Boo, even though no one sees him, um, that they're just constantly trying to get a glimpse of, and they come up with a bunch of, with a bunch of plans to, like, try to draw him out of the house. It's, uh, it's very cute and very silly. At one point it gets a little scary because one of the other Radleys catches them at the back door and, like, uh, shoots at him with a shotgun. Um, but some of the fun stuff they do, they, like, hang notes at the end of a fishing pole and try to drop him into his window. Uh, they think Boo might be secretly communicating with them by leaving stuff in a knot hole in the tree in his yard. Um, like, leaving little bits of candy and, and some gum sticks, that kind of thing. So that's kind of Scout's world, and then in... So the whole story is told from her point of view, but sometimes she's witness to things that are happening in the larger scope of the world. So uh, Scout's father, Atticus, is a lawyer. He works as a public defender or some kind of version of it, um, but he's been assigned to this case where he's defending a black man who's been charged with rape. And you don't get very much of this in the beginning of the novel. It takes quite a while, um, and then there's lots of scenes of Atticus talking about the case and about why he's taking it because, um, you know, he wouldn't feel like he could face his children if he didn't take this case and do his best with it, that kind of thing. And Atticus is basically, like, the nicest white dude that ever existed, and he's the kind of person that all white people think they would have been during those years. So he's like a stand-up guy who goes about his business, but he has morals, damn it, and he thinks that anyone who cheats a black person is ten times worse than someone who cheats a white person. But, you know, he can only do so much. He's just one guy. Sorry about the wind, guys. Okay. Atticus can only do so much because he's just one guy, and the problem is he kind of does believe in these overarching stereotypes. Like, his whole thing is that he basically pities black people, and that's about the best that any white person in this book manages. Um, one character basically says, there but for the grace of God go I, and... It's not like, oh, hey, let's actually make change. It's, oh, what a shame everything is so terrible for them. Thank goodness it's not me. And, like, don't get me wrong, 
it's great that Atticus stands up in court for Tom Robinson. And change is slow. And as a narrative, I think that this book really manages to get these points across very well. But I also don't think that this should be the definitive standard classic on racism. But anyway, um, so Tom Robinson is the guy who was accused of raping this woman. Um, And it's shown through the trial that he did not. Um, She was basically abused by her father, and from what I can gather, she was trying to find some sort of solace and connection with someone who uh, wasn't her father and who actually aroused her. And because, again, she doesn't see black people as human, she just assumed that this black man who is kind to her and would help her with the chopping wood sometimes, and he's young and attractive... Um, would be the perfect sort of, like, scapegoat for her own needs. And so she tries to kiss him, and he pulls away, and her father's just, like, standing there watching, and uh, Tom ran off, and then the father ended up beating the hell out of his daughter, and then they called the police and blamed Tom for the whole thing. And, uh, of course, Tom has a family. He's got a wife and children, and he's got his own life that, Um, isn't really shown in the novel, um, but it is shown that he has a wife and kids, and he he was just trying to get out of this nonsense. Um, Atticus does a pretty impressive job defending him, but of course it isn't quite enough for this very racist jury, and they do sentence him to death after an hours-long deliberation, which is supposed to be this big, like, miracle. Um, But before there's a chance to actually go to appeal, Tom is shot in jail, quote-unquote, because he tried to run. And they shoot him 17 times, and no one ever questions, like, hey, did he actually try to run, or did they just set him up? But it's, like, this whole, like, oh, him trying to run really undermines this idea that maybe he was innocent, and it's gross. It's... It's very upsetting. The abusive father guy is, like, really pissed off because everyone made him look like a fool, I guess, even though he won. So he uh, tries to break into the judge's house and he harasses um, Tom's wife every time she walks by his place. And, like, a year later after the, the death of Tom... Scout and her brother Jem are coming home from the school pageant at night, and uh, the father guy attacks them like he's gonna kill the he's gonna kill Atticus's kids as like revenge. Um, but Boo Radley, remember the secluded neighbor, he suddenly shows up and he saves them and like stabs the bad guy uh, and kills him. Uh, Jem ends up with a broken arm, and Scout is fine, and basically everyone's glad the guy is dead. The sheriff is like, oh, nope, no one killed him. He fell on his own knife. That's the story. I'm sticking to it. Deal with it. And then that's the end. And I think what really worked for me in this book are the little moments, like the bits between Scout and her brother, the back and forth she kind of has with her dad. Um, I'm going to read a piece of that real quick. Aunt Alexandra was fanatical on the subject of my attire. I could not possibly hope to be a lady if I wore breeches. When I said I could do nothing in a dress, she said I wasn't supposed to be doing things that required pants. Aunt Alexandra's vision of my 
of my deportment involved playing with small stoves, tea sets, and wearing the add-a-pearl necklace she gave me when I was born. Furthermore, I should be a ray of sunshine in my father's lonely life. I suggested that one could be a ray of sunshine in pants just as well, but Auntie said that one had to behave like a sunbeam, that I was born good but had grown progressively worse every year. She hurt my feelings and set my teeth permanently on edge, but when I asked Atticus about it, he said there were already enough sunbeams in the family, and to go on about my business, he didn't mind me much the way I was. Um, and I think that's really cute. There's a sense of family that Lee is really good at capturing, um, and it spoke to me kind of on a deeper level. Uh, I really actually just enjoyed the, the experience of reading this so much more than I thought I would. But again, as much as I personally got from it, I definitely still fall on the side of maybe don't push this in schools. Like, I just think that maybe our progressive heroes should do more than add a few hours to a jury's deliberation. Like, maybe they should be willing to examine their own racist attitudes and to see people of color as, you know, actual people, not poor souls to be pitied and taken under the shelter of our very limited protection. So I just, I demand better heroes, basically. Um, but away from controversial subjects, controversial, controversial? Wow, that's a hard word. Away from controversial subjects for a minute. Uh, this week I made a cherry cobbler. Uh, cherry because peaches are not in season, but I made a cobbler because a cobbler is sort of that quintessential southern recipe and the cherries were super duper good in it. Um, I also got to use an old recipe from the 50s and like handle the actual index card that it had been printed on. Um, my husband's grandma keeps all of her recipes um, uh, and that she's picked up in these little like bundles and the cobbler one is on this really old index card and it's been stained from years and years and years of use. And uh, I posted a picture of it on my Instagram so I will link to that on the website. But the cobbler was really surprisingly simple. It was just, um, you boil the fruit with sugar and water. Uh, I had to add red dye because canned cherries come out really bleached and ugly looking. If you don't put the red dye in there, no idea why. Um, but then it's just flour, sugar, baking soda, salt, and milk um, for the, the crust. Um... And the recipe calls for thin milk, but grandma told me to go ahead and use half and half. And I actually uh, didn't have half and half, so I mixed um, whole milk and my heavy whipping cream, and it came out fine. And I actually tripled the, the cobbler recipe because in this house, we love that part. So uh, you put the hot cherries in a long casserole dish and then you just sort of dump the batter on top and then you I threw it in the oven at 375 for about 35 minutes and it came out amazing. It looks a little grim because the cherries are red so it sort of had this like 
um, veiny look, but it was still so good. I actually had some for breakfast this morning. Uh, it's good hot, it's good cold, it's good with cream, it's good with ice cream. Basically, there is no wrong way to eat this dessert, and I would 100% make it again. And actually, I think every recipe from now on is going to be like a cobbler variant forever and ever and ever. Um, so now to my favorite segment, the best academic paper titles. Uh, I tried to pick the ones that were the most confusing for me based solely on titles. So here we go. Prolepsis and Anachronism. Emmett Till and the Historiosity. Nope. Emmett Till and the Historicity of To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't even know who Emmett Till is. I don't think he's a character in the book. So, what? <laughs> um, and then the next one is Queer Children and Representative Men. Harper Lee, Racial Liberalism and the Dilemma of To Kill a Mockingbird. And I don't know if they mean queer the way that I mean queer when I use it, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what that one's about. And then finally, don't put your shoes on the bed, a moral analysis of To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't know how those things are related, but sure. <laughs> so I talked a little bit about why it's a classic before, but let's delve a little deeper into that. Um, I think it's a classic because there is this sense of nostalgia to it. Um, it kind of calls back to a simpler time for white, specifically white adults, um, before we understood racism and the atrocities perpetuated by our country. I think there's a moment in a lot of white Americans' lives when we learn about racism, and it feels like a loss of innocence because until that moment, for white people, the world is open and full of possibility and many white people don't realize that that's not true for everybody. We just assume that it is. Um, but it can be so easy to forget that for children of color, there probably wasn't one particular moment where they learned about racism. Or if there was, it was very likely experienced much, much younger. Because for a person of color, Racism is a daily reality, not some weird, naive innocence that is shattered by this, by the world and by this horrible concept. And I think that's mainly the problem I have with this being required reading in schools beyond the upsetting racism and cavalier sort of racist attitudes that are tossed around, even by Scout. I mean, she's, she's eight for a lot of the book and she repeats what she hears in society at the at, in 1935 so it's racist you know um but why should a student of color be required to read about this you know little white girl discovering a truth that they've known all their lives like why is that why is it that even in discussions of racism and the black experience in america a white protagonist is so necessary. Like, I really did enjoy this book, and I think it does have a lot to offer in terms of, like, narrative construction and character development. Um, and again, I think for many white people, there is a sense of connection and understanding, but maybe we should just reconsider this as required reading in schools. 
That's all I'm saying. Uh, anyway, I'm going to leap right out of that fire and move on to my recommendation for this week. Uh, what I really enjoyed about this was Scout's voice. I thought it was charming and intelligent enough to be interesting as an adult, while also appealing to younger readers. So in that vein, I'm going to recommend one of my favorite kids' books of the last few years that I honestly think everyone should read, even adults. Um, it's called The Girl Who Drank the Moon, and it's by Kelly Barnhill. And it's a beautiful, magical kids' book that won the Newbery Award Medal in 2017. And... It is a kid's book about magic and witches, but it's also a book about asking questions about the status quo and challenging authority. Um, there's a city that once a year, uh, the, the elders say that once a year you must leave the youngest baby in the village as sacrifice in the woods for the witch to keep her satisfied. And if we don't do that, the there are so many worse things that will happen. It's going to, you know, destroy the city if we don't uh, take this very young baby and leave it in the woods. But actually, the witch is like this really nice old woman and she has no idea why she keeps finding these poor babies out in the woods. Um, but every time she finds one, she takes them and finds them a really nice home across the valley and they end up growing up with these loving families. Um, but one year, she ends up keeping one of the children because she falls in love with her, and she accidentally imbues, her, imbues this child with magic. And it's just a really gorgeous tale. And there is, there's darkness, but also joy. Um, and the, the creatures in the tale are super cute as well, because there's like a tiny dragon who thinks that he's normal-sized and everyone around him is just a giant. And there's a swamp monster who's, like, basically Winnie the Pooh if he was a swamp monster. It's super cute. I love this book. Um, and this week, instead of a baking tip, I'm going to tell you a story. So one time I was making a pizza at my friend's house. And she had, like, this really fancy pizza stone that came with its own, like, special wire rack to lift it to the perfect center of your stove or whatever. Um, well, it was time to take the pizza out of the oven, and I could only find one oven mitt, so I couldn't grab the whole contraption. So I grabbed the pizza stone with the oven mitt, and then, when I saw that the wire rack was still in the oven, I reached in and grabbed it with my bare hand. Like an idiot. So, I dropped it because it was freaking hot, <laughs> and then I was like, oh no, I dropped something on the floor, I should pick that up. And I did with the same hand. So, yeah, I guess the moral of that story is if you don't learn the first time, just keep trying. You will get it at some point. Um, so thank you so much for listening to The Astute Macaron. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast listening app of choice. If you do make a cherry cobbler, please send me pictures on Twitter or Instagram, and that's at Astute Macaron. And remember, macaron is spelled with one O. If you spell it with two O's, you will go to trial, and Atticus Finch will not be the one defending you. 
Uh, you can also email baking tips or questions to astutemacaronpod at gmail.com. If you want pictures of my bakes or recipe links, you can always follow me on social media or head to my website, astutemacaron.weebly.com. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can set up a small recurring monthly donation at patreon.com slash astutemacaron. Uh, for as little as $1 a month, you can help me pay for hosting fees, um, equipment maintenance, and most importantly, ingredients, because baking is kind of expensive. Um, in return, you get some cool perks like a monthly newsletter or even a fancy bookmark. Until next time, keep reading, keep baking, and you will be one bright oatmeal cookie. Mm -hmm.